So last week, I stood in the middle of a fairly uncomfortable interchange at the TD Bank. They've implemented a new mobile check-in that we have to do before we can get into the building to do our banking. And I think this is pretty normal for across the region. Um, I think all TD banks are doing this. And there was only three of us in line. There was a lady who was checking us in. And then this man rolled up and got increasingly more and more agitated about having to do this mobile check-in because it was a little bit tricky, but I think it'll get easier the more we do it. And you could just see him visibly getting more and more angry and more and more upset. And he was right at the end of the line. There was only three of us in line. He was right next to me. And he eventually just started yelling and hollering at the lady who was checking us in about how he couldn't get to his money. And he had come on that day to buy a truck. And here are all these fire hoops he had to jump through to get his money out of his account. And it reminded me after the fact of how all of these new regulations we're having to put in place, like wearing masks and social distancing and doing mobile check-ins and waiting in line, can feel like it's curbing our freedom. And that can feel like it's controlling us. And that in turn can make us feel anxious, angry, unsettled, frustrated, inconvenienced. And as I reflected on that experience, first I had to laugh because as this man was railing about all the rules he had to follow, he was wearing a mask. So at least he was following that rule. Um, but I think it also reminded me of the central fear that we are learning about this week in our series on the Enneagram. And that is for Enneagram 8, the fear of being controlled. My name is Kristen. I'm on the teaching team here at Elevation. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm so glad you're with us this morning worshiping, even online. And you're joining us towards the end of the series. This is our second to last week of nine weeks of looking at different fears and desires that motivate our life. And we're asking the question, what do these fears and desires reveal about our hunger for God, who God is, and who we are as his children? So this week is Enneagram 8 and the fear of being controlled. So I know there are kids in the room with us. And so if you are here with us kids, I would love for you to get a piece of paper, some pen um, and markers. And I want you to draw a mask on the piece of paper of your favorite superhero, your favorite book character, whatever you want to come up with. Draw a mask that you can cut out later with your mom and dad and tie string around and wear it. So we're having you draw, draw masks because this lines up a little bit with the way in which eights move through the world. <clears throat> it's not that they're in disingenuous, it's not that they're fake, but it's because their number one fear is of being controlled, their number one desire is to protect themselves. So somewhere along the way, eights learned that they had to be strong to survive in this world. Probably early on, the Enneagram teachers say they experienced being suffocated or smothered um, or infringed upon by caregivers or adults or authorities in their life. And so they grow up pushing back and trying to protect those boundaries. And they move through the world by putting up a really strong, tough front as a way of 
testing the testing the boundaries, learning if they can trust you not to control them. And it's actually a way of building intimacy. So the number one fear of eights is the fear of being controlled. And the number one desire of eights is the desire to protect themselves. So what do eights get right? Well, they're right to be on their guard. There are plenty of powers and people in the world that would seek to control and manipulate us. And we've seen this, unfortunately, in corrupt power, whether it be fallen politicians or religious leaders or teachers or parents or coaches, people who are supposed to be in charge of us, supposed to be taking care of us, looking out for us, but really in the end are only taking advantage of us for their own gain. So what can we learn from eights is how to put clear boundaries in place to guard our hearts and be intentional about who is influencing us. This is a really good lesson we can learn from eights. It's a wise lesson. But what do eights get wrong? Well, the other side of the coin is that uh, even though we're meant to be intentional about who's influencing our lives, we're also not meant to live as if we're ultimately in control of our own lives. Now, this is not a politically correct thing to say. It's not popular to say that we're not in charge of our own destiny. I think there's plenty of messages and movies and books and songs that champion us being free. And that idea of being free means nobody controls me. I'm in control of myself. Nobody can tell me what to do. I just got done reading uh, Glennon Doyle's most recent book called Untamed. And I'll be honest, I am a big fan of Glennon Doyle. I enjoyed her first two books, but I was a little uncomfortable with the message in this third book, Untamed, uh, because I couldn't ultimately agree with her idea that we need to burn it all down, that we need to live our life wild and free as if nothing is controlling us and nothing or nobody should be able to put their mark on us and tell us who we are. Because it's true in some respects, we're not meant to be tamed by the forces of the world. Our spirits were never meant to be caged and controlled by the systems and powers of culture and politics and greed. But that's only half the story. The Bible reveals a deeper spiritual truth here, and that's that we are ultimately designed to submit control of our lives to a power greater than ourselves. I'll say that again, that while it is true that we're not meant to be tamed or caged by the systems and powers of this world, we are designed to submit control of our lives to a power greater than ourselves, and that power is God, our creator. The Bible tells us that we are created with the Imago Dei, the image of God. His fingerprints are all over us. Thomas Merton writes that our Eden is the heart of Christ. Our Eden is the heart of Christ. So if you imagine paradise, a world where all things live in reconciliation with themselves and God, and if we imagine our hearts reconciled and living at peace, that's Eden. And for us, that is the heart of Christ. So we belong to God and God to us, and we are made to fit like two puzzle pieces. Here's an imperfect analogy to help us wrap our minds around this. 
So imagine that you are a light bulb and you have been designed to plug into a bigger power source in order to generate light. Now you have free will. You can choose which power source you're going to plug into. You don't have to plug into Jesus or God, but it's naive and dangerous to believe that somehow you are meant to generate light all by yourself. Because while you believe that you are generating light all by yourself, you'll find that actually you've just been plugged into another power source that isn't God. And the light from any other power source that isn't God only leads us to being controlled, manipulated, and destroyed. So what are these other power sources? Well, for some of us, these alternate power sources may be obvious. You may automatically see yourselves in the eights and know just how and where and when you exert control to try to make sure that nobody else is controlling you or the situation. So maybe we micromanage things. Maybe we make ourselves the center of the drama. Maybe we push people away and put up walls. Or we always seek to be the boss. Or we always seek to influence the boss. Maybe we schedule our life and our family to the point of exhaustion. Maybe we take control by trying to avoid pain or by avoiding intimacy. But there are other hidden powers that work through systems that allow us to keep our grip on control in ways that we don't even realize. So for me, this really um, has been coming to terms with the extent to which having light skin has allowed me to have power and control in every aspect of my community and society. So for example, I could move to this lovely rural town of New Hamburg and just at a glance, people assume that I'm from here and I belong here. The neighbors have welcomed me with open arms, but sometimes I wonder if that would have been the same if my skin was a little darker. I also don't ever get worried about being pulled over by police. True confessions, I have been pulled over once for a speeding ticket here in Canada. I can also go to the grocery store and buy flesh-colored band-aids that will match the tone of my skin. So this power source of having light skin and the privilege that comes with all of that can subconsciously drive my life in ways I don't even realize. I mean, I can start to think that I'm being liked and accepted um, and that I'm being successful and that I'm, I'm getting along so well in life based on my own merit, based on the fact that I am I have all these great attributes and that those who are struggling may be struggling because they just aren't as hardworking as me or maybe they're not as smart as me or as righteous as me. But do you see how the light from this power source is rotten? If I were a light bulb, the light that I pull from the power source of being white actually turns everything around me a sickly color because it pushes down my brothers and sisters in Christ who are darker skinned. Um, it disadvantages those who look different than me for no good reason other than the color of their skin. So furthermore, this kind of privilege only dehumanizes me because ultimately by separating me from my brothers and sisters, it only serves to separate me from myself. 
As Thomas Merton reminds us, we become like the power we allow to control us. He writes, every man becomes the image of God he adores. He whose worship is directed to a dead thing becomes a dead thing. He who loves corruption rots. He who loves a shadow becomes himself a shadow. He who loves things that must perish lives in dread of their perishing. So friends, we can't fall into the false belief that we are able to be disconnected from any larger power in our life completely. We were made to submit control of our lives. And if we're not submitting control to God, then we're being controlled uh, by something or someone else. This, the Bible gives us a picture of this in the story of Samson, which was our scripture reading for today. So if you know the story of Samson, you'll know that he was a Nazarite, which meant that he was set apart as a special worker for God. So there were certain rules and stipulations he had to live by, like he couldn't drink and he couldn't cut his hair. By submitting to these rules for living, Samson was symbolically submitting himself to God and living connected in God's presence. And as a result, God's presence gave him superhuman strength. But as you read over the course of the story, you start to see that Samson begins to forget where his power comes from. He begins to believe that he is strong in and of himself and that he can be a free agent doing whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. He forgets that he was designed to live in submission to a power greater than himself. And if it wasn't going to be God, it was bound to be something else. And that something else turns out to be a someone else who is Delilah. So Samson falls into, in love with Delilah and the Philistines come to Delilah and they pay her off and they say, we will give you all of this money if you will find out the secret to Samson's strength. And so four times she tricks Samson and tries to get him to tell his secret. And ultimately, he severs his connection with God by, con by um, confiding in her and telling her the secret to his power, which is his long hair. She cuts his hair, shaves his head. He is drained of the power that God has given him because he is symbolically separated from the power of God in that moment. And so then she turns him over to the Philistines. But being controlled by the Philistines is a raw deal compared to living in submission to God. He is blinded and sent to prison. He becomes a slave to the Philistines and he has to perform for them and entertain them. We see in the life of Samson that though he had to follow some rules for his lifestyle as a Nazarite, those rules may have felt like they were curbing his freedom, but they were actually making him more powerful than any other man around him because they were connecting him to the presence of God. Okay, kids, so at the beginning of the sermon, I had you draw a mask of your favorite character. Now I want you to put that paper aside, get out another piece of paper, and I want you to try to draw a picture of your own face. Make the mask actually your own face. See if you can do it. So at the heart of all of this really is the issue of trust. So eights don't trust others of the world not to try to control them. So they put up a strong front. They resist and push back in order to protect themselves. 
but the invitation to the eights and to all of us in as much as we identify with this fear of being controlled is not to burn it all down like Glennon Doyle says and live like we are completely connect disconnected from any, any higher power trying to control us. The invitation is to submit control of our lives to God. But do we trust God? Do we trust that he is good, that he loves us and won't try to squash us and destroy us? We're right to be wary of God because God isn't predictable and we certainly cannot control him. This reminds me of the famous children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the um, Pevensey children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they learn for the first time that the true king of Narnia is actually a lion, not a man. And this disturbs them because they're afraid of the idea of a lion. And Mr. Beaver says to them, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Is God safe? No. Is he good? Yes. Can we trust him with our life? Yes. Will you trust him? Well, that choice is up to you. In Samson's story, the only way he had to connect to the power of God was by following the rules for the Nazarites. But now we live in a New Testament era. Those rules have been replaced by the person of Jesus, who is God's son. Now, if we, now, if we want to submit control of our lives to God, if, if we want to plug into that power source that brings true light and freedom to our lives, we don't have to follow a bunch of rules and try to be good enough and offer sacrifices like Samson had to do. All we have to do is connect with the person of Jesus. And you can do that by telling Jesus that you believe he is who he said he was, the son of God, and that you want him and him alone to have full control of your life. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 verses 22 and 23, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is Paul talking about here? This doesn't make any sense. How can we be slaves of God and yet free? Here he sets up this mystery for us to work on and unravel and keep applying our hearts and minds to. And it's this idea that when we are, uh, when we are slaves to sin, it leads to death. But when we're set free from those things, when we're set free from the other bigger powers of this world that would seek to control us, we can be truly um, free in God. We can submit our control, our heart, and our will to God and in that, become more fully human, become more free and liberated than we've ever been before in our lives. It sounds like an oxymoron. It sounds like a paradox. But for us, like Samson, the heart of the matter is trust. And here's the final thing we learned from Samson's story. Samson forgot 
that he was connected to the power of God. He forgot from whence his power came. And yet he was able to return to God. And in those final moments of his life, he was welcomed back into the presence of God. And he was able to connect to that power of God and do mighty, mighty things. And the same is true from us. We're, for us. We're going to forget many times, even every day, where our power comes from. And we will be tempted to try to take control of our lives again. And we're going to be tempted to try to secure things on our own. And yet the invitation to us every day, every morning, is to come back into the presence of God, to connect to our Creator through Jesus, and to tell Him again, Jesus, I want you to be in control of my life and you alone. Help me not to forget who my power comes from. So I want to end today praying for us. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much that you have designed us for you, that our spirits and our hearts were made to walk in your presence, just like Adam and Eve walked in your presence in the Garden of Eden every day. Lord, I pray every day that you would bring to our mind and make us conscious of the ways that other things around us are trying to control our hearts and our lives and our minds. And, and Holy Spirit, I pray you would just give us a little nudge, a little tap on our hearts and remind us, hey, that's not, that's not where real power comes from. Real power comes from me. Give us the courage to submit control of our lives to you and help us to be able to do that day in and day out so that in you we can truly be free like Paul tells us in Romans. In Jesus' name. Amen.